It's a little after 10 p.m. on April 3rd in the year 1716. On the northwestern tip of Cuba in the Bay of Hounds, Bahia Honda in Spanish, the stillness of the warm Caribbean night is broken only by the gentle splashing of oars pulling through the water. Bright moonlight dances over the surface of dark rippling waves as two large sailing canoes glide stealthily through the bay towards their target. Samuel Bellamy, a young, tussle-haired Englishman, is at the head of the lead canoe. His friend and quartermaster, Paulsgrave Williams, leads the second. With them is a group of fearsome mariners. Rough, grim, and battle-hardened, these are desperate men. Bellamy stands on the bow, his steely gaze fixed on their prize. The French merchant ship, the Saint Marie, sits at anchor, still blissfully unaware of their approach. Bellamy bellows the order to row harder. His men strain at the oars. Behind them, towed on bowlines, are two Jamaican sloops of war. Every stroke carries their great mass of timber and cannon a little further into the bay and into firing range of the Saint Marie. On the bow of the largest sloop stands Captain Henry Jennings, the man in overall command of this strange mix of vessels. He now watches on with some apprehension. How has this come to pass? He silently wonders. How is it that he, a man of good estate, a licensed privateer under a royal commission, now depends on this rabble of ingrates? A few hundred yards away, Aboard the French ship, a cry goes up. The alarm has been raised. They've been spotted. Lamps suddenly flare into life like eyes snapping open, awake to the imminent danger of the approaching pirates. On the deck of the Saint Marie, merchant captain and part owner of the vessel Jean Descoubet trains his spyglass on their assailants. He feels a cold sweat forming on his neck. The hairs on his arms bristle, and a shiver of fear rolls through him. Under the moonlight, he can see them clearly enough. It's a terrifying sight. The pirates are armed to the teeth, brandishing cutlasses and pistols, now screaming like lunatics and every one of them. Stuck naked. As the invaders close in, their blood-curdling cries become clearer. Discernible words start to emerge, transforming into an unmistakable demand. Surrender now, or face the consequences. No mercy would be given, no life would be spared. Rather hopefully, a Frenchman shouts back, Where are you headed? The pirate's reply is short and to the point. Where do you think? Aboard! A rattle of gunfire punctuates their message. Discoubet covers his eyes as a volley of pistol and musket shot crash around him, splintering wood, tearing through sails, and ricocheting off metal. A cry of agony goes up somewhere behind him. God preserve us, he thinks. I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates. The show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the black flag 
alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the seven seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. Just a few months before the attack of the St. Marie, Captain Henry Jennings was a well-respected privateer, supposedly operating under a commission to hunt pirates issued by the Royal Governor of Jamaica. So what changed? How did a pirate hunter switch sides and become a full-blown pirate in such a short time? For Henry Jennings, it turns out, the murky path to turning pirate is easier than one might think. It's January 26, 1716. The mild winter sun burns off the last of the morning cloud. Gulls and terns swoop low overhead as the Bathsheba sails into Kingston Harbour and towards the docks of Port Royal, Jamaica. Jennings sits in his cabin, pretending to study navigational charts. A cool breeze rustles his papers while the squawks and cries of the seabirds invade his thoughts. For nearly a week, he has pondered the same question. What kind of reception should he expect? In former times, his daring raids on the Spanish would have guaranteed a hero's welcome. But times were changing. As he prepares to face his employer, Governor Archibald Hamilton, he accepts he may have some explaining to do. Back in December, he had set sail with a royal commission from the governor as a privateer. Officially, his orders were to chase down any pirates that might be scavenging the wrecks of the sunken Spanish treasure fleet that had recently floundered off the coast of Florida. Privately, the governor had made it clear that Jennings should use whatever means necessary to recover as much Spanish gold as he could for Britain or rather, Jamaica, and himself. However, Jennings suspects he may have gone too far this time. Going ashore and attacking the Spanish salvage camps on land. They'd essentially literally robbed the King of Spain and his officials of their treasure during peacetime, loaded 87,000 pounds worth of primarily pieces of eight onto their vessels to sail back to Jamaica with this new prize. Now, whether or not Governor Hamilton knew that they would 
do this. It was pretty obvious they must have because they weren't gone very long. They weren't gone long enough to have salvaged 87,000 pounds scattered, you know, in 30 feet of water. Then we arrived, we stuck around for 18 hours. Here we are with 87,000 pounds of nice, clean, organized treasure, right? Everyone knew what must have happened. Indeed, John Balkan, commander of HMS Diamond of the Jamaica station, writing at the time made his suspicions clear. In a shorter time than can be expected, they'd returned again with a considerable sum of money, etc., which I could not forbear saying I thought to be the greatest of piracy, and indeed, it is blamed by some of the island of Jamaica. Unknown to Jennings, his raid on the salvage camps in Florida has caused international outrage. Potentially, it could even be seen as an act of war. Jennings was sailing under British colors, after all. To make matters worse, on his return to Jamaica, Jennings was spotted, and his ship, the Barsheba, was recognized by the Spanish. His homecoming has been hotly followed by delegates of the Cuban governor in Havana. He demands restitution for these blatant acts of piracy, and insists strong action be taken. And slowly this was going to come back and haunt Governor Hamilton and Henry Jennings because eventually word of this would get back to London and the King of Spain was infurious and wanted something done and indeed something would be done. Governor Hamilton is wary of his association. He attempts to distance himself from the controversy, claiming that despite personally funding the expedition, he took no share of the spoils. For I heard that it was taken from the shore, he says though many have their doubts. Despite the governor's cold reception and the cries of injustice from the Spaniards, Jennings appears to be in the clear, just about. And by March 1716, all seems to have been forgiven. Incredibly, Jennings' privateering commission is renewed, and he is permitted to set out for a second cruise to the Spanish wrecks. The lure of gold usually wins out. He makes preparations to depart Jamaica for the second time inside of six months. Jennings thinks he has been proven right. Even the worst transgressions can eventually be smoothed over. The line between privateer and pirate has always been hazy, a deliberate gray area that many on both sides of the law have sought to exploit. For most people, the accent of piracy, that doesn't define them. They generally will start in legitimate trade, in the Navy perhaps, and then they'll move maybe into legitimate legal privateering, and then they'll commit a single act of piracy, but then expect they can get pardoned or maybe they won't get caught, and then they go back to privateering. And then often there's some act that, you know, some target is too tempting or they're too drunk and make a terrible decision or whatever. Maybe they cross the line to a point that they can't ever cross back again. But it's seldom a decision where it's the flipping of a coin and everything has changed. But whether he knows it or not, Jennings has started down a path and it will prove hard to turn back. March 9th, 1716. Jennings, emboldened by his new commission, sets out with his fleet. It's an early spring morning. The Caribbean sun breaks over the horizon. With Jamaica at his back, Cutting through the crystal blue waters are Jennings, aboard the Barsheba, and three other ships. The Mary, a 50-ton sloop of war captained by Lee Ashworth, another privateer in Hamilton's employ, and two smaller sloops, the Coconut and the Discovery, who follow from the sterns. As before, Jennings' crew is drawn from the destitute mariners of Port Royal, 
they are mainly ruffians and lowlifes. Chief amongst these hardy sailors is the brutish Charles Vane. Perhaps he knows he's onto a good thing under this privateer commander. Or perhaps he sends his opportunity knocking as Jennings inches towards turning full pirate. By late March, Jennings's flotilla is patrolling the northern coast of Cuba, only a few hundred miles from the Florida wrecks. As good a place as any to try and intercept a ship laden with salvaged Spanish gold. A westerly wind whips up the warm sea air and fills the Bathsheba's sails. She's making good progress when the lookout gives the hopeful cry, Ship ahoy! But as they draw nearer, the privateer's hearts sink. They can tell from her design the vessel is English, a trading sloop by the look of it. Not a Spaniard or another prize target. Alongside her are two smaller boats, single-masted canoes called piriaguas, local traders perhaps. They continue their approach, raising the Union Jack as a friendly signal to their compatriots. But as they close in, Jennings grows suspicious. There's a strange stillness to the situation. No hail or greeting has been received. They edge closer. They're nearly on top of the vessel when he realizes his mistake. Those sailing canoes don't belong to traders. Quite by accident, Jennings' fleet has stumbled into the middle of a robbery. The sloop is being plundered by pirates. There's a sudden burst of frenzied activity on deck. On board the English sloop, the pirates had been carefully watching Jennings' approach, and now they leap into action. They make a run for it, but they don't flee empty-handed. They hurl whatever loot they can overboard and into their sailing canoes below. As the Bathsheba draws up, Jennings watches on as the villains cast off, rowing for their lives. Their nimble boats move quickly. They sail directly into the wind where their pursuers can't follow. Jennings knows he won't catch them. Instead, he comes alongside and boards the liberated sloop. Captain Young, the master of the English vessel, tells Jennings that the pirates have carried off most of their money and precious cargo. Outraged, he also reports that these pirates were themselves led by an Englishman. Treacherous dog. Young naively thinks his troubles are over, that these Jamaican privateers will help him. He is wrong. Jennings won't let Captain Young go. Instead, he has his men take control of Young's ship and moves the fleet nearby to Bahia Honda, an uninhabited inlet, to decide what to do next. At Bahia Honda, Jennings is greeted with a surprise. Inside the keyhole-shaped harbor lies a vessel at anchor, a French merchant ship, the St. Marie. Jennings smiles. This is a worthy prize. Jennings studies the French frigate-rigged ship through his eyeglass. His fleet has the St. Marie trapped, but a direct assault would be highly dangerous. Stealth is the best approach here, but he needs more information. Following a reconnaissance by Jennings' men, he discovers the French crew is approximately 45 strong, with between 14 and 16 guns. The captain 
is a man named Jean Descoubet, a merchant from La Rochelle. Jennings convenes a council with his captains. He has decided to seize the French ship under the false pretense that she's a pirate vessel and bring it back to Jamaica as a prize. This creates a rift in Jennings's ranks. Samuel Liddell, captain of the Coconut, speaks out. He saw the St. Marie in Veracruz, Mexico just months ago. Everyone knows she's a legitimate trader. An argument breaks out between the captains. Others want to take the ship. But why are these privateers ready to stoop to open piracy? Perhaps Jennings's men are just desperate for a payday. Whatever the reason, Liddell is outnumbered. Jennings says that he will take the ship tonight. Liddell is unmoved. He refuses to take part in Jennings's piratical venture. As a result, Liddell's quartermaster and nearly a dozen men abandon the coconut. It's a price he's willing to pay. It's 7 p.m. The Cuban sky is ablaze with reds and oranges as the sun sets over the dense jungle surrounding the bay. Jennings makes ready to attack the French ship. But then, something extraordinary happens. Two canoes approach Jennings's ship. It's the pirate band from before. The vessels are crammed with a motley crew of misfits. Native Americans, Black Caribbeans, enslaved people escaped from plantations, and a mix of European sailors. They are led by an Englishman out of the West Country, Samuel Bellamy, and his friend, a New Englander named Paulsgrave Williams. Little could they know, this young, wretched-looking mariner would soon become Black Sam Bellamy, the most feared pirate captain on the eastern seaboard. Bellamy had watched Jennings' seizure of Captain Young's ship and was puzzled. Perhaps he suspected that these privateers were less law-abiding than he initially thought. In the dimming dusk light from the decks of their ships, Bellamy and Jennings assess one another. They both sense this is an opportune moment. Jennings invites them aboard. The pirate hunters and the pirates join forces. One thing you can say about pirate hunters is like any other privateer, they have a backer and they're expected to turn over some of their haul. And that can be a motivation for a privateer turning pirate, that you're not getting to keep all of the spoils. And um, pirates do get to keep all of the spoils. So there's that temptation if you're a pirate hunter and you see a pirate ship, do you make out better if you strike an alliance? Or do you follow the commission that you're supposed to be following? A few hours later, Captain Descoubet watches in terror as the pirates close in. Two canoes filled with naked madmen, frenzied with bloodlust, and two sloops of war barrel down on the French vessel. A shower of musket fire blasts the St. Marie. The Bathsheba fires its cannon. It cracks like thunder, and the shot roars across the bowsprit at head height. Escobet ducks, a warning of what's to come. The French are also badly outnumbered. Bellamy boards the ship with his wild men. A pistol in his hand, he warns the Frenchman he'll send them to Davy Jones's locker if they resist. Escobet is no fool. He surrenders to the pirates without firing a shot. 
The capture of the Saint Marie is a masterclass, and for Bellamy, an important lesson in the value of psychological warfare. The French have given up their own well-armed vessel without a fight, purely out of fear. The use of terror was a common tactic, and it's a tactic that makes sense in that the pirates want to minimize resistance. The risk of grievous injury and bodily harm is very real. You want to minimize that to yourself and to your crew if you possibly can. And so the need to subdue people quickly is is very powerful. And so I think that's where the use of terror comes in. While self-preservation is understandable, what Bellamy now discovers firsthand is that the incentive to avoid a fight is even stronger for the crew facing a pirate attack. These captured Frenchmen are also terrified of the repercussions. If the ship that's been attacked has put up a lot of resistance, if some of the pirates have been wounded or killed, it's a lot more likely that the men on board the ship will not only have their belongings stolen, but will be beaten and mistreated just because of the bad feelings that the resistance created. Whereas at least the hope would generally be that if everybody surrenders quietly, there's less mistreatment. They are right to be concerned. It's the morning of April 4th, 1716, the day after the capture of the St. Marie. Jennings's fleet sits serenely on the still waters of the bay. The pirates' canoes bob gently nearby. The partnership between Jennings and Bellamy proved a great success. The ship is subdued. But now comes the reckoning. The French crew are lined up along the deck. They pray their quick surrender will spare them the worst. They've all heard the stories of brutality pirates are famous for. They just want to make it home alive. Captain Jennings takes stock. Each sailor is searched, their pockets emptied. The ship is rummaged and the inventory is checked. Jennings quickly suspects there's hidden loot and the Descubes crew are keeping it secret. This is a mistake. And part of that search would be interrogating, in particular, the officers as to where things were. If people didn't like the answers they were getting, torture was very frequently employed. Jennings is unconvinced by the Frenchmen and unimpressed with their cargo. He decides to apply some pressure to the crew. Descubier later reported that Jennings tormented the crew to inhumane degree and in the vilest manner. Descubier doesn't say precisely what torments his crew faced at the hands of Jennings. One can only imagine. But it was probably far worse than being made to walk the plank. There's no evidence that they actually made people walk the plank. That's a practice that's later, and it was more attached to the trade in enslaved prisoners than it was to pirate ships. That doesn't mean there wasn't torture. There was all sorts of unpleasant things that you could do. Inserting sharp sticks under somebody's fingernails, beating, cutting, cutting someone's ear off or slicing their nose. There's some accounts that are probably apocryphal. Cutting off someone's lips and making them eat it. That doesn't seem like a very good torture because then how are they going to tell you where the gold is hidden? One that comes up a lot is wolding, which is when a knotted rope is tied around somebody's head and sort of slowly tightens, which apparently is immensely painful. And this could take anywhere from a couple of hours to sometimes days. Eventually, someone cracks. The crew turn over everything. They even reveal they've hidden 30,000 pieces of eight ashore. 
the total haul is worth 700,000 French livres, over 30,000 pounds. It's a huge score. Jennings knows he has, once again, massively exceeded his commission. This time he concocts a plan to excuse his extra-legal activities. Standing menacingly at his elbow, Jennings forces Descoubert to pen a letter to Governor Hamilton explaining the events in a more forgiving light. He writes, I must acquaint your excellency that those gentlemen treated me very civilly and were very willing to give me so much per month for the hire or freight of my vessel. He adds that Jennings only took my vessel because she was fit for the expedition they were going on. The terrified Frenchmen now divulge an additional secret. There is another easy prize close at hand. Some of Descoubert's crew actually belonged to another vessel, another French merchant ship, the Marianne, which is anchored just a short distance along the coast. Jennings sends out scouts to assess the situation. Captain Liddell has seen and heard enough. He will not be party to piracy. He takes what's left of his crew and sets sail on the coconut back to Jamaica. The following morning, Jennings patiently waits for the scouts to return with news of the Marianne. So he is astonished when he sees the very same French merchant ship suddenly appear on the horizon. The Marianne is moving swiftly, passing by the mouth of Bahia Honda, but she is not alone. The French vessel is being escorted by a large Spanish sloop of war, flying the black flag. Some of Jennings' crew recognize it immediately. It's the Benjamin, the flagship of the infamous Nassau pirate captain Benjamin Hornigold. Jennings rallies his crew and signals his commanders. He barks out orders to weigh anchor, hoist the mainsails, and give chase. He knows Hornigold well, both by reputation and from his last visit to the Bahamas. An upstart, a common outlaw, is now making off with a prize that should rightfully be his. Jennings, at least in his own mind, is a legitimate privateer working under a royal commission. Perhaps he will be doing some pirate hunting after all. As Jennings' fleet pursues the Benjamin, their prize, the Saint Marie, lags behind. When enough distance has opened up, Bellamy, still on board the Saint Marie, senses an opportunity. One daring act will catapult him into history and set him on course to become one of the most renowned pirate captains in the Atlantic. Jennings needs to take off and capture another vessel nearby. And while he's doing so, Bellamy and Williams and their crew give a signal and overwhelm Jennings' own pirates on the captured French vessel, grab all the treasure, throw it into their canoes and take off themselves. In other words, they'd pirated the pirates. Who knows, maybe they'd come to Nassau previously and seen what how haughty and imperious Jennings was behaving towards Hornigold and other more rank-and-file, low-status pirates. But for whatever reason, they did this and took off. Failing in his attempts to capture Hornigold, Jennings returns to the St. Marie, upon which he discovers Bellamy's betrayal. Furious, he storms and rages. Impotent to do anything else, he orders that Bellamy's other abandoned canoe be cut to pieces. But it does little to calm his temper. In his heart, he chides himself for leaving Bellamy alone with the treasure. Never trust a pirate. 
Meanwhile, with Jennings far behind them, Bellamy is about to strike up a new alliance. But who should Bellamy and Williams then encounter thereafter? But Benjamin Hornigold and his fleet. Benjamin Hornigold, who dislikes Jennings, arrives and sees these fellows buck naked traveling in their canoes, loaded down with treasure. And they meet up, perhaps sharing the story. Hornigold probably would have enjoyed this a great deal and joining in their own alliances. And in this way, we know that at least as of that moment, Bellamy and Williams and Hornigold all know each other and are forming an alliance if they didn't know each other before. An alliance which is very much in opposition to Henry Jennings. You know, they've happily stolen his treasure and are absconding with it, and Hornigold is involved as well. So it just shows the bad blood forming between these factions. On April 22nd, 1716, Jennings's privateering fleet, including the captured St. Marie, sails into the harbor of Nassau on New Providence, the principal island of the Bahamas and home to the infamous pirate nest. It's likely he has come in search of Hornigold and Bellamy and to seek his revenge. With a powerful fleet of three vessels and a combined firepower of 52 guns at his back, he is undoubtedly the premier force in the region. Sadly for him, Hornigold and Bellamy are elsewhere, striking it rich, terrorizing shipping throughout the tropics. No doubt disappointed and still seething, Jennings heads ashore to blow off steam in the makeshift taverns and brothels on land. He goes on a binge that lasts for days. Back on board his ships, meanwhile, without their Commodore present, chaos ensues. Most of the combined crew descend on the St. Marie and her remaining booty. They break locks on chests of silver, slash open bales of rich textiles, and happily crack open crates of wine. It's a free-for-all. On any ship, pirate or privateer, this is tantamount to high treason. But something in the Nassau air has infected these men. After a long and eventful voyage, these Jamaican privateers are on the edge, and in this republic of pirates, they can taste a new life. It tastes like freedom. And so, they decide to renegotiate the terms of their employment. It's hard to know precisely the motivations of his crew, but Jennings and his vessels, up until this moment in the early 1716, are organized like privateers, right? Jennings has all the authority, you folks are working on shares, and that's that. But once they get to Nassau and Jennings is ashore, well, suddenly these privateers suddenly find themselves in this pirate base where all the surrounding pirate crews are organized in a flat, egalitarian, democratic way. What's interesting with privateers is most of that money is going to go to the captain and to the backers, the corporations that have outfitted the privateer. What's different is with the pirates, the division is much more equitable. It's not perfectly equitable, but they'll get a much more equal share of the spoils. They probably look at each other and say, why are we doing it this way? Everyone else around us is doing this this more fair and just system. And our captain isn't. He's ashore. We're going to take what we deserve. Jennings' expedition started so well, but now seems perilously close to disaster. After a few days, he wrestles back control of the St. Marie. He reasserts his authority over the portion of his crew that hasn't already abandoned him. 
they load the remainder of their treasure onto a trading sloop headed to Jamaica. This is their employer's share of the spoils, including Governor Hamilton's take. Nursing a mighty hangover, and perhaps filled with some remorse, Jennings ponders the next steps. He has now added attacking the legitimate shipping of a foreign prince in peacetime to his growing charge sheet. Once again, his thoughts turn to how this news might be received back in Jamaica. Days before, during the plundering of the St. Marie, he confesses to his quartermaster, Alan Bernard, that he might be in over his head. Between you and I, if I can get her out to sea again with ye goods in her, I will run her up to Jamaica and secure her, for these fellows have drawn me into this and will doubtless, when they have shared the goods, leave me to answer all. In any event, Jennings makes ready to depart Nassau. He and his commanders include a bundle of letters on the sloop bound for Jamaica. The letters explain the taking of the French vessels and probably include the forced deposition of Captain Descoubet. They hope this will be enough to see them clear. I think he really thought he could buy his way out of it. I think he had every reason to think that. Up until towards the end of the Golden Age, in general, the majority of the crew will be pardoned and will promise to be good boys forever after and will have the opportunity to basically be reabsorbed into society. So I think it's not that shocking that he believed he could make this all work out. But things are shifting, and I think that Jennings missed that shift. In the spring of 1716, Jennings's fleet, the Bathsheba, the Mary, and their prize, the St. Marie, depart Nassau. They head out into the pure, open, aquamarine waters of the Caribbean, leaving behind them the dirt and deviance of the pirate nest. Jennings knows they must return to Jamaica and face the music. With a decent pile of prize money, a sincere-sounding apology, and a few well-placed bribes, he's sure he can smooth things over. It's mid-July. 1716, Jamaica. Jennings's fleet lies at anchor on the docks at Port Royal. His return has caused a stir, which he had expected. But things are far worse than he'd imagined. A political storm is brewing and Jennings is at the center of it. The Spanish are enraged. They have discovered Governor Hamilton was himself a part owner of the privateers who'd raided the Florida salvage camps. The net is closing around both Jennings and Hamilton. Suddenly Jennings was outmaneuvered and the extra legal activities he had been involved in had finally caught up with him. So Archibald Hamilton and Jennings had overplayed their cards by actually attacking the salvage camps of the Spanish king. That had been a step beyond the gray area that authorities back in London were willing to look away from and pretend they hadn't seen. The French are also furious. A delegation from Hispaniola has arrived to protest the attacks on their ships. Their party includes a sour Captain Descoubet, who is extremely unimpressed at finding his ship, the Saint Marie, sat in the harbor. But worst of all, Governor Hamilton, Jennings's patron, has fallen foul of the crown, the King of England himself. Hamilton is a Scotsman and allegedly a Jacobite, a supporter of the exiled Prince James Stuart. 
a Jacobite rebellion in England has just been put down. Now suspicions turn on their supporters, and Hamilton is in the firing line. Jennings's last line of defense crumbles. Jennings is a respectable merchant with an estate in Jamaica. He knows all these people. He's been going out, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, raiding Spanish vessels and the Spanish treasure fleet and maybe an occasional English ship here and there. But the point is that he had the protection of the top authority and essentially in the whole Caribbean basin, the governor of Jamaica. He thought that he had a well-placed ally who could protect him, and he didn't see the loss of that ally coming. In a bid to save himself, Hamilton issues arrest warrants for Jennings and his crew and tries to stop them leaving the island. But Jennings is already out of reach. If he was naive to think his commission would save him, he's smart enough to know when to jump ship. By late July, he is once again aboard the Bathsheba. With a good wind, they make fast progress, quickly cutting a course northwards. Under him is a crew only too willing to sail under the black flag. Jennings months hence would discover that he had been declared by the king of England to be a pirate and that he and his men had to be captured. Not only that, Governor Hamilton was in chains aboard a newly arrived Royal Navy frigate. He'd been arrested both for this, but primarily because of the failure of the 1715 Jacobite uprising. And so Hamilton was in chains. The Henry Jennings had been converted suddenly from being a privateer engaged in legalized piracy to literally being declared most wanted by the king himself. And that meant that Jennings and his men had to flee and take refuge in the one place that they might go in these times, to the pirate refuge in the Bahamas that they had already known so well. Sometime in August 1716, Jennings once again sails back into the colorful harbor of Nassau. The Bahama pirate nest is by now infamous across the Americas. Horror stories are digested daily in the Boston newsletter. Whispers of freedom spread among those enslaved on plantations and on the docks and in the taverns of Port Royal, Tortuga and Boston, the pirates of the Caribbean are becoming legend. For those on the bottom of the colonial power heap, it's a shining beacon, another world where another life is possible. Next week on Real Pirates, we enter the pirate kingdom of Nassau, discovering the history of the Bahamas and how it went from promising colony to degenerate pirate nest. We meet the colorful figures that inhabit the pirate republic and see the inner workings of its society, finding out what life was really like amongst the pirates. Was it an egalitarian utopia or lawless nightmare? That's next week on Real Pirates. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boreau for Parcast. Produced and written by McAllister Bexon and Addison Nugent. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Edited by Matthias Torres Sole and Rob Plummer. Sound design by Matthias Torres Sole. Mix master by Kian Ryan Morgan. 